0: Welcome, everybody, to Let's Find Out About Parks, live! I'm
1: Chris Changin Phillips. And I'm Trevor Chow-Fraser. Let's Find Out is a podcast about the history of Edmonton, a miskwetchi on Treaty 6 territory and Métis Region 4. We take questions from curious Edmontonians, like you all, about local history, and then we find out the answers together.
0: Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Thank you for joining us tonight for a live show here at a great little venue called the Aviary. We are recording tonight's show here on the eve of Truth and Reconciliation Day for the podcast listeners at home in the future. Everybody say hi, podcast listeners.
1: We have a great lineup of speakers tonight to get us inspired to think big about parks and natural areas. Marilyn Dumont, who's going to be sharing some poetry and getting us thinking deeply about the land we build parks on. Yeah. Uh, Tara Russell, who's going to help us see the big picture of how parks fit into protecting our fellow species and ecosystems. And Sarah Delano, who's going to be talking about her research project exploring how settlers and indigenous folks in our city can connect to parks
0: and natural areas through food. You good? All right. You're gonna hear more later about Sarah's book, Rat Roots and Reasons to Gather, but a recipe from that book is what inspired a few of us to make that apple, pear, and rhubarb crisp that hopefully you've had a chance to try. If you haven't, it's really good. Um, that's genuine Edmonton grown rhubarb in there and there's no dairy. Um, so hopefully, if, that, if any of those things were a barrier, go enjoy. Uh, we promise it's homemade with love and a lot of brown sugar. The rest of the food is courtesy of a friend of the podcast, past question uh, asker, and also my mom, Denise Chang-Yan. She can't be here tonight, but thanks, Mom. Uh, amongst all these great speakers tonight, we're also going to be playing some little games to get your brains firing about parks history, because by the end of the night, we want you to give us your questions about parks history in Edmonton, and then we'll build our season out of what you ask us.
1: Before we get into why we're so curious about parks, we'd like to invite our program director, Fonda Mithrush, to the stage to say a few words about the Alberta Podcast Network.
2: Hi, thanks everyone for coming and thank you so much for inviting me to say a few words about the Podcast Network. The Alberta Podcast Network is um, a group of independently host podcasts throughout Alberta. A lot of them are in Edmonton. It was created by Karen Unland and now I am the program director. I have been since 2020. And uh, the topic tonight is really cool and close to my heart because I come from a family of Arborists <laughs> and urban foresters. So this is going to be um, really cool, and I'm really interested to hear all everything that you're talking about. So thanks everyone for coming. If you want to hear about more about the podcast network, go to albertapodcastnetwork.com and check out some of our some of our offerings. We have a newsletter that comes out every week with a playlist of all the episodes, so you can sign up for that on the website too. Thanks so much. Have a great night
0: so we wanted to say a little bit about why we picked this theme for our season ahead like a lot of us the pandemic forced both trevor and i to find some new ways to connect with the people that we love and parks were a big part of that i went looking for beavers splashing around and owls nesting in white mud creek ravine with finn
1: uh, Chris helped me discover the Clifford Ely Bird Sanctuary I... with my kids. That's that's you, Elliot, talking to you. Who I barely kept up with as we were running up and down the boardwalks. <laughs> yeah, Chris is not fit to be running around with, <laughs> with a six-year-old, I'm telling you. Uh, but speaking of not fit, in 2020, I had to quarantine with my household for 21 days and trapped indoors arguing incessantly about the exact date each of us had been exposed so that we would know if we could make it to Jasper in time for Labor Day weekend. It was, it was very difficult, but we made it out there. And so of course it snowed.
0: <laughs> My head, of course, is also full of parks because I'm learning about fossil sites in Yoho National Park in school right now. which has brought up lots of conversations with Trevor and I about how much Collectively, we take for granted the existence of parks and natural spaces in Edmonton. Like everything else in our landscape, they have a specific history, a reason a place is a public park or not, a protected space or not, a place with people living and harvesting in it or not.
1: And this past summer, with a second kid in tow, um, we moved houses, and it was a chance for me to reflect on what kind of home I wanted for my kids, and a lot of that was thinking about what kind of home I'd wanted when I was a kid. So. Uh, Back then, my favorite comic was Calvin and Hobbes. I'm sure many of you can relate. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What appealed to me wasn't so much the idea of, you know, like a T-Rex and a fighter jet, um, but it was more just all the times that Calvin and Hobbes went out into their backyard, because their backyard, well, my backyard was an alley here in Edmonton. Uh, Their backyard was the woods, and the woods seemed to just go on and on forever. There were trees, hills, rivers, all rendered in beautiful watercolor, And they raced around, they made up games, they explored. The forest was a playground, basically. Now, when I was in grade school, my family moved to Hamilton, Ontario. And ironically, that's where I found the forest playground I had been waiting for. Across the street, there was a wide strip of meadow separating my neighborhood from the next. There were dirt trails etched into the rolling grassland. My new friends and I would spend all day on bike riding through the meadows. If you went far enough, suddenly there was a forest and over time, we saw ramshackle tree houses and forts appear and fall apart. I didn't know it at the time, but this forest paradise wasn't long for the world. My dad called it the right of way, and as a kid, I heard that as the right of way, as in, turn off the TV and go outside right away. (laughs) (laughs) But years later, I learned it meant the city had reserved it for a highway. It wasn't a park, it wasn't a park after all, by middle school, the forest was gone, the meadows were asphalt, the birdsong song replaced with the roar of 80-kilometer-per-hour traffic. In high school, Hamilton wanted to extend that highway, the link, through the Red Hill Creek, connecting it to the lower city. My church community took up arms. We wrote letters to the editor, took vigils in the woods, we took hikes as a form of protest. Progress had its way nonetheless. It, it begs the question to me, why do we always turn our parks into highways? <laughs> now Edmontonians love the river valley, our ribbon, ribbon of green, but I often wonder what it would be like to have the creek valleys too. Quesnel, I have no idea if I'm saying that Quennell. right. Okay.
0: Quesnel, it's it. not intuitive.
1: <laughs> we'll fix that in post. <laughs> <laughs> Quesnel, Capilano, Grote Ravines, What were they like before they became freeways? It turns out it might look a lot like the McKinnon Ravine. This long park goes from the base of Grote Road to almost Jasper Place, so you can see why the city planners wanted it paved. In fact, you can see where they cut down trees and leveled the terrain and put in storm sewers. But after years of protest, by a single vote, city council decided to stop construction. And that's why today we have Government House Park instead of a five minute shorter
0: drive to West Head. My heart kind of aches for Grote Ravine, which is now a road. And so many places in Edmonton have these dramatic what-ifs. A park that was almost a freeway, a lake that was drained to build Park Allen, a road cutting through a park that people fought to close and then it slid into the river. Uh, Rocky Furrow, who's in the audience tonight, hi, Rocky. Um, She turned me on to this great National Film Board documentary from 1965 called City Under Pressure. So I want to show you a little clip from it um, because it captures some of the debate around whether Mill Creek, which is near today's Matar Conservatory, should be turned into a, a freeway as Edmonton grew. So, this is back in 1965. The documentary is called City Under Pressure.
3: The planners are well aware of the traffic problem, and new highways are an important part of the redevelopment program. Their natural route is through the unoccupied land in the river valleys, like this the Mill Creek Ravine. The citizens have a, a choice to make with regards Mill Creek. If the decision is not to allow any roadway uh, development in the ravine, then one of two things can happen. Firstly, the freeway could be relocated into the subdivisions west of the ravine at a cost uh, of probably something in the order of 4 to $8 million more. Uh, many people would be uprooted and displaced The uh, utilities would be um, disrupted. But more importantly, communities would be split, Uh, community leagues, school districts, local market areas. The second possibility is that the cost in terms of dollars and in terms of community values might be considered so high that the road would never be developed. And this, in my opinion, would be very detrimental because it would cripple the freeway system, and it would incur costs to the public just as real as a tax levy, because traffic congestion, traffic delay, vehicle operation, uh, gasoline, all cost money.
0: Thanks, Caitlin. Caitlin Carbonic, everybody. So there's so much to unpack there from what our unnamed highway engineer is saying. The idea that Mill Creek Ravine was unoccupied, for one thing. Is it unoccupied if people walked down there to harvest berries with their family, if Coyote's Den with their young in the banks, if just a few decades before this, workers and their families lived in a shantytown there, and meatpacking plants were dumping waste into the creek, and a train line was running through the ravine? There's a lot going on in our park's history, and hardly any of it seems natural or inevitable. There have always been all kinds of tensions between groups, over what park should be in Edmonton, and it's not always been obvious at the time who's going to win. Like, who at the time would have expected that residents like Carolyn and Butch Nutter would succeed in arguing that Mill Creek and its neighborhood deserve to stay the way that they were? Who would have expected that the park lovers assembled to retire Keeler and the horse riders in Belgravia residents would successfully shut down the Keeler Road shortcut through White Mud Park, which apparently my mom is still upset about. Who among the Papas-Jays Cree who started to make a home along McKernan's Lake in the 1800s, or people who rode the streetcar down to skate there in the 1910s, would have expected that whole lake to be drained in the 40s and turned into subdivisions of houses with leaky basements? That's, That's Park Allen and McKernan, and that's why they fled all the time. Who would have predicted that in a place like Dinosaur Provincial Park, created to protect fossils in the Badlands, that one of the biggest conflicts in the park's early days would be between paleontologists who wanted to take fossils out to study them and parks managers who wanted to keep them in the ground. Is there space in parks for folk festivals and for moose habitat? How do we balance making parks safe and accessible and keeping them wild? And are they always the best way to protect land and water? Parks raise so many important questions about how we're going to live together here and how our city came to be the way it is today.
1: want to keep you thinking about these questions and generating more of your own uh, by helping you get to know your neighbors at the same time. So we're going to do a little game. Um, When you came in you should have grabbed a card with the name of a park or a natural area on it, hopefully one that you've been to or are familiar with at least. So what we want you to do is take that card and go find other people who can tell you a story about that place. Every time you can find someone who can tell you a story, you can get a sticker. Uh, do, do they have the stickers? They should have stickers. You should all have stickers as well. If not, you can grab some more. Um, yeah, so go find people, get stories, get stickers for the stories. If you have a story about that place, that counts as one. So and go ahead and put it
0: on the card. There's a prize. The first person to get five stickers in their card... You really had to gametize it, eh?
1: <laughs> uh yeah, the first person who gets uh five stickers on their card and can share all five stories will win a little prize.
0: Yeah. Alright, so get to it. Find five stories about your Parker Natural.
2: cemetery yes i used to walk past through this every day on my way to my job at the roxy theater before it burned down oh okay so <laughs> yeah. you past it yeah i used to walk through, i used to walk all the way through it actually um oh, okay. and just it was just such a beautiful scene in the morning because it was very quiet yeah. and now yeah, just learning the history and seeing you know the years on the graves and things like that it's just it's it was yeah it was actually the best walk to work ever i <laughs> bet yeah
4: uh, which park do you have? Oh, I used to work there when I was a teenager. Oh, really? I, my parents live very close to McLawn Lake. Okay, okay. So I used to drive a golf cart, um, and I worked in the beach hut. We rented canoes and oh, stuff. Oh, I did so a beach hut. At some oh, point okay. we had a beach hut, yeah. Okay. I'll give you one of mine. All right. And there was a little girl with us in the group, and she was really, really fascinated with learning about and looking through the binoculars and, you know, she would, she had brought along a
0: little stuffed bird with bird seed and the whole thing. So she was feeding the little stuffed bird and then she would throw some seeds for the sparrows and that sort of thing
3: that were around.
0: It was really cool. And that's <laughs> so lovely. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great family-friendly place, and like I said, easy, easy for a person with a walker like myself to get around. At, at Lois Hole Provincial Parks in
3: uh, Saint Albert.
0: <laughs> okay, we. May we please present our winner of uh, the sticker exchange. And awesome to see so many stories going back and forth. So uh, with five stickers about Horlack Park, Brynna Anderson is our winner.
4: I have five stories about Horlack Park. Um, One is about picnics, cross-country skiing, uh, dog walks, specifically prancing, taking up lots of space, um someone who was the director of Shakespeare in the Park having a particularly memorable um performance of Othello in a storm and someone who goes there every year for a birthday skate January 26th 22nd, 22nd. Yeah, that
1: right. that's it <laughs> awesome congratulations uh thanks for sharing those stories you can have your own picnic in the park now okay. with this lego little Thank toy you. set and, uh, and they, oh, also there's a caribou here. Sorry, to clarify for the listeners, that's not a real caribou. I think that would be illegal. It's a, it's a stuffed caribou, which maybe sounds worse, but.
0: So our first speaker of the evening is Marilyn Dumont. Marilyn is a Métis poet, writer, and professor, and teaches for the Faculties of Arts and Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Her four collections of poetry have won either provincial or national awards, A Really Good Brown Girl, Green Green Girl Dreams Mountains, That Tongued Belonging, and The Pemmican Eaters. She was awarded the 2018 Lifetime Membership from the League of Canadian Poets for her contributions to poetry in Canada, and in 2019, She was awarded the University of Alberta Distinguished Alumni Award and the Alberta Lieutenant Governor's Distinguished Artist Award. Her writing is funny and warm and illuminating, and so is she. Uh, Please welcome to the stage uh, Marilyn Dumont.
5: Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I'm gonna get some room here. I'm gonna start off by just talking about um, some research that I was able to um, do with uh, the uh, help of a grad student by the name of Emily Haynes, who's also Métis. Um, What does it mean when I say I'm in Alberta? At 67 I've been able to map out my paternal Dumont ancestry, back five generations in Alberta. Now I have a visual concept of what territories my ancestors traveled, hunted, or lived. And also, this visual map has altered the way I perceive myself on a territory that my family has known longer than the province of Alberta has existed. Um, I grew up uh, actually uh, until I was actually maybe three or four on road allowance in a place called Sundry, Alberta. And if any of you know what road allowance is, it's land set aside to widen the road. Uh, many, many Metis in Alberta lived on road allowance. Uh, We did not sign treaties. Uh, We were not awarded land. And so we lived um, We lived on the margins of most towns and became the labor of those towns Um, So I want to start first with um, The first Dumont who arrived here and he's the brother to the famous Gabriel Dumont Jean Baptiste Dumont arrived in Alberta in 1790 and um, he was a free trader at Edmonton House and later at Fort Carlton and Fort Pitt. In the 1800s is the second generation Gabriel Dumont. There was a Gabriel in every generation of the Dumonts. Gabriel Dumont who is the nephew of the famous Dumont Gabriel Dumont, was born in Rocky Mountain House. And the only one of Jean-Baptiste's offspring, who did not marry a la Frambois. And that's very important because the research that is being done now is that the Métis women were basically in charge of the genealogy uh, to maintain the strength of the Buffalo Brigades. So everyone who married a La Frambois from the Dumonts became part of la, the La Framboise Dumont Buffalo Brigade. And uh, so this is the uh, agency with which Métis women uh, supposedly worked in the background uh, in the Métis community. These early uh, relatives of of mine were in Buffalo brigades that moved more than they were settled. Brigades were made up of extended family units that would either not at sites all through Alberta. Tail Creek, Buffalo Lake, Big Valley, Lac Saint Anne. They spoke French, but preferred Cree. And they hunted from the third um, generation, 1830 to 1870, Jacques Elisir Dumont lived in Duhemel. And um, I have a sense that he was really the first kind of settled relative in Alberta. And if any of you know where Duhemel is, it's uh, it's on Highway 21. It's about 100 kilometers southeast of Edmonton, 20 kilometers southwest of Camrose. There was an early HPC post there and a a large Métis community. Elizir and his wife both died of smallpox at Duhamel. 1859 to early 1900s, the fourth generation, Timothy, or Chimodee, my Chapon, my um applied for scrip on behalf of his son my musum saint pierre dumont timothy's land in saint paul de metis was lost in obfuscation uh, with the catholic church and the french settlers that were encouraged to simply move into our houses and so that when we came back from hunting they told us you don't have you don't own this house This is what happened at St. Paul de Métis. Um, The fifth generation, um, oh no, I've got, just wait a second. Um, My father's generation, 1917 to 1992, my family moved in the back of a three-ton truck with two other families from Lac La to Sundry Alberta Road Allowance. And they worked on settler farms to make enough money to get to the next place. So we ended up on road allowance in Sundry Alberta. And I wondered ever since I was a teenager, how did that happen? Excuse me. We were large, very resourceful, intelligent, Very capable people. Why did we live on the side of the road? I had no idea why until this past year when I did this research. In my initial research, this is what I've learned. That looking for land tenure was a misguided settler-oriented concept. Therefore, I was overlooking my own ancestors by looking for settlement. Settlement was something unfamiliar and undesirable to many of the Buffalo Brigades who are members of my family. Imagine somebody telling you in your Buffalo Brigade, you can't move. Well, I'm sorry, the bison don't come to us. Um, Arthur Ray argues that historiography of the Métis has been very settlement-oriented. Heather Devine has indicated that most documentary sources were created by outsiders whose recordings of events was influenced by their own economic preoccupations and cultural biases. In these writings, the lives of the working class, like my family, of the fur trade, were almost always invisible. Brenda McDougall writes about the Buffalo Brigades. These people who lived in family based economic units spent their lives in a continuous cycle of mo- movement that is alien to us today. This settler oriented bias coupled with generations of land dispossession, script corruption, obfuscation, homestead abandonment, and poverty left my family as squatters on land we moved across following the seasonal migration of bison in the mid-1800s before Alberta was a province. I have another understanding about my own history, which has been shaped by misleading historiography. The Trottier Brigade at White Horse Plains began wintering further and further west in the 1850s. McDougall argues that the Métis and Red River were not the first out onto the plains. Instead, they joined other Métis who had made the plains their home since the early 1800s. So all of these iconic uh, pieces of text that we might read about Uh, Red River settlement and how they all went hunting there and sorry folks we were doing it here way before they did and uh, Alberta is not known as a place for Métis but it really is. It is the only province that has eight Métis settlements. There used to be 12 but four were decommissioned. So my orientation to what I've read all these years is really heavily biased. Um, Not that I didn't know before, but this visual aid and, and the research made me look closer at the historical time periods. And it really informs a different part of me now. And it's pretty clear to me that my family's territory became increasingly controlled by settler colonialism until my family territory was reduced and we were forced to take homesteader scrip. My parents never spoke nostalgically about where they came from. 60 years hence, their desire to revisit the places they fled was only mentioned because of the familial connections still there, but where we came from and how we got to road allowance in Sundry was something I thought a lot about but I didn't know how to find answers to. But in my own oversight in not in researching family territory was about a story that was not supposed to be carried. This story was to be left behind. Unfortunately, this story wasn't picked up like so many things that the Métis carried. They carried their doors in their carts, because that's what you could jig out on on the prairies. And also, you had a door for your new house. They traveled with holy water and their priests and, um, but This story was not to be picked up and carried to the next place. The stories we didn't carry were supposed to be obscured by our education and socialization in the nation state of Canada and in the province of Alberta. We forgot our territories, sorry, we forgot where our territories were just as the nation state didn't acknowledge our way of life because we eschewed settlement. And we therefore became ghosts on our own land because our way of life was not recognized or awarded. My conceptualization now is that I'm not in Alberta. Alberta is on the land of my Métis ancestors and treaty relatives. I'm just going to read you a couple of poems. Um, one of the things uh, I discovered in my research was that many of the vi- babies born in the West were Midwat were, the midwives were indigenous. Um, There were a few doctors, and the doctors were here were expensive. So indigenous midwives came to help birth babies. And they weren't just there during the birth. They came beforehand. They massaged the woman's belly while she was in labor. They gave her raspberry tea. They stayed after the birth and helped her suckle. So most of the babies born in the West were brought to this world by Indigenous midwives. This poem is called, A Nation of Indigenous Midwives Delivered This Country. And there's a word in here, which is, we whip song. And it's it's essentially a baby swing where, for example, you would hang, suspend a rope from that corner to that corner, so you'd have two ropes going across. You fold a big flannel sheet in it put the baby in it and it's right over your bed and when the baby cries you just give it a little push. Wee Whip Song. A nation of indigenous midwives delivered this country. Brown bent women singing water circles rain suckling minnows threading. Babies licked to sleep swinging threading through Wee weep Song. Flannel wrapped babies suspended by ropes strung corner to corner of the room within easy reach of a brown hand lulling awasis to sleep. Dark woman circles brooding litters. Women with strong minds and swings across their beds suckle minnows to sleep through water veins. Water web, suckled minnows threading through swoop fluid diving brown hands massaging the belly of the motherland, steeping walled raspberry tea for the coming labor. Thanks. And I'll just read you one more. Um, this is uh, Governor Simpson. Um, I was telling people, someone at the table anyways when I was talking, we didn't know much about my mother's history because Dumont, the new Dumont name figured largely and everyone everyone wanted to know about that. But my mother is uh, comes from the Dufresne and Vaness family. Uh, Francois Dufresne, they were both interpreters at Onion Lake. Francois Dufresne is the illegitimate son of Chief Factor Rowan. Chief Factor Rowan had many illegitimate children and uh, Francois Dufresne, my Chappan, happens to be one of them. Um, and um, so this is Governor Simpson, who had actually eight indigenous women, 13 babies, and then brought his cousin over and married her. Governor Simpson, when the nights turn cold, He was not quite as alone as his journals might have indicated. His title and generous libido took him to the chill of a foreign place and people. His his desire for Indigenous women caught him with his palisades down. Unfurling his Puritan corkscrew to eight Indigenous women and thirteen babies. His inclination for Cree Métis women's silken breasts warms brown against his sin. Their smell of smokewood, his own stench of loneliness and fear, inside her rabbit fur blankets, comforts, but haunts his struggle. The struggle with his belted pinstripe pants, but inevitable return to his washerwoman, brown wives and daughters offered the Randy Scotsman, who is salt-pocked with guilt and shame. Eight bits of brown and 13 children later, he fears talk might extend his reputation far beyond the worst philandering before him. And pines for a lighter-skinned woman, perhaps someone British, who will salvage his rusting hull. And the hubris of noblemen, projecting themselves upon a place, erecting a seedling nation in the image of themselves first through the trade. He enters the Burnt Wood territory, seeds himself over and over. Out of lust, out of greed, out of loneliness and fear, he feeds himself seeds himself into being, into this place, with big animals, relentless weather, and unpredictable Indians, or worse, the matey, half known, half trusted. But Sir George couldn't keep his hands off the brown earth force of indigenous women, who instead of rejoicing with her, is dragged down by Puritan notions of dousing the human need for sex, transcending the weaker vessel, sin and all dark. But he relents time after time to the perfectly white smile of a brown woman who has just fed her babies the richest meal they have ever had from her breast. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Marilyn. That was uh, fantastic. Thank you for sharing your poems and your stories. Um, you've illuminated our history uh, through your personal family history, uh, which is uh, really remarkable. And uh, I think you've really done a good job of challenging the idea that uh, unoccupied, that, that the lands that we're talking about, uh, that often we talk about as parks, are unoccupied. Um, and, and I think that's really important for us to sit on uh, and carry on to this next conversation. So our next speaker will help us think about why we build and foster parks. Um, Tara Russell is the program director at CPAWS Northern Alberta. And full disclosure, um, I have accepted one of these stickers from CPOS, uh, which you may also grab on your way out the door. Uh, I've also bought one of those Caribou stuffies uh, and uh, my sister does work for CPAWS as well. <clears throat> uh, Tara Russell started working with CPaws in 2015, where her passion and knowledge of Alberta's wild spaces have allowed her to wear many hats in the organization. She has led projects to better protect our natural heritage. Uh, at the break, I encourage you to ask her about Alberta's parks and public land, caribou conservation, uh, and her work to protect North Saskatchewan River headwaters. Outside of her work with CPAWs, she recharges in the very places she works to protect and brings her family and friends along for the ride. Please welcome Tara Russell.
6: Awesome. Um, thanks so much for having me and inviting me, Trevor and Chris, to your podcast. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and I was really really touched by the opening icebreaker activity and telling stories about our parks and the places that we go in nature and and the way that we relate to the land um, is really why I do this job and why I enjoy doing this work. Because I also, like, Trevor introduced me, get recharged by these natural places. And I know in this space and in Alberta, I'm not alone in that. So um, as Trevor said, I'm Tara Russell. I'm the program director for the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society Northern Alberta chapter. And we're a charitable organization that works to protect wilderness and wildlife and intact healthy ecosystems on public land across Northern Alberta. And this is a really big job because 60% of Alberta is public land. So that's publicly owned land, um, also called crown land, and it's supposed to be managed for us and our future by our government. And the government is notoriously hard to convince to do good things sometimes. So what is a park? What are we talking about today? I know we all started looking at our um, local Edmonton area parks, but broadly a park is defined as a clearly defined geographical space, recognized, dedicated, and managed through legal or other effective means to achieve the long-term conservation of nature with associated ecosystem services and cultural values. And that's a bit of a mouthful. Um, But, practically, in Alberta, that looks like some of our very well-known areas like Banff or Jasper National Park, Elk Island, if anyone has visited just out of the city, or Wood Buffalo National Park, um, all of those are national parks in Alberta. And they are defined geographically um, with a boundary and managed by our federal government by Parks Canada for their ecological integrity. It gets even more confusing in Alberta because we also have provincial parks, and our provincial parks come in about nine different designations. It's taken several of us to decipher them all, and we have spreadsheets tracking what they each are supposed to do. But at the core of it, these areas are managed by our provincial government through legislation that is dedicated to protecting those areas. And many of you are likely familiar with some of the beautiful ones around here. I saw Clifford, uh, the Clifford E. Lee Sanctuary, which is a natural area, and I'm sure many of you got out this summer to some of our provincial recreation areas to go camping. And then another layer down, we have our municipal parks. And those ones are great, such accessible places for access to nature, but maybe aren't always managed by the municipalities or cities with nature conservation as the number one intention. So why is it important that we have these defined geographical areas that are managed for conservation? Well, first of all, a lot of the scientific evidence is showing us that parks and protected areas are our best way to halt biodiversity loss and to combat climate change and build our resiliency in the face of climate change. So biodiversity, or the variety of life in this entire world, you know, plants, animals, insects, all of those little tidbits that we love exploring when we get out into nature, they are at risk. And that diversity of life is rapidly declining around the world. And here at home, in Canada, and in Alberta, in Edmonton, we're not immune to those risks. And I don't mean to get all doom and gloom, but from 1970 to 2014, about half of the monitored species in Canada were found to be declining in abundance. And those species at risk here in Canada, those ones that we're seeing rapidly decline, like caribou, or wood bison, or some of our treasured migratory birds that we get to see here each year, those are each facing an average of five threats each. And those include things like habitat loss, disturbance, climate change, and protected areas, that um, where resource extraction or destructive activities are prevented really help address all of these threats like habitat loss. But beyond addressing biodiversity and climate change, our parks also provide us with recreational uses, health benefits, and social and economic benefits. Um, I know Trevor and Chris mentioned earlier Um, And I know I'm not alone when I say that nature really helped me get through the two years of isolation in the pandemic. So they provide lots of these uh, social helps for us as well. And not only that, but they are an economic boon. The research in Canada shows that for every dollar invested in a park or protected area in Canada returns $6 to our GDP. So yeah, love to see the fist bump in the audience. It's really exciting. Um, and you know, even more on a selfish stage for, for humans, these intact ecosystems that we can create by protecting spaces also provide better air and water quality. I think one of the most obvious um, examples of this is New York City, one of the densest populated areas in the U.S., went out of their way to protect their headwaters and their water source. So you are not allowed to do much of anything in their headwaters, because they recognize the importance of those intact forests for providing water to a huge, dense city. This is a big part of why CPAWs Northern Alberta has been working so hard to protect our headwaters in the North Saskatchewan River, to keep that water quality and flow. So parks do so much for us. and. You know, it's, it's nice to think about all of those individual spaces and special stories that we have, but on a broader scale, we need an entire network and a system of parks so that we are able to protect migratory bird habitat, caribou habitat, our good water quality, and also all of those places we love to get out and play. So we need a system and a parks network, um, but how much do we need for that network? Well, evidence from around the world is suggesting that 50% protection is what we need to stem biodiversity loss and fight climate change. And Canada and almost a hundred other nations from around the world, as, as part of the High Ambition Coalition Coalition for Nature and People, have agreed to work towards a target of 30% protection by 2030. And On a whole, we have a little bit of a ways to go. Canada is currently at 13.5% protection, and Alberta is a bit above average at 15.6. We were lucky in Alberta to have some of the world's most iconic parks and protected areas in our Rocky Mountains. And though highly disturbed, we also have unique foothills landscapes protected and the large area in the boreal forest. But we do need to do more. I'm really grateful to all of those folks that came before us that that did so much to protect these landscapes and steward them and had the foresight to establish parks. I'm especially grateful that Mill Creek Ravine did not become a highway. Um, I live right beside that, and that would have been devastating. But I do wanna say that just because This is how parks were created in the past, by drawing hard lines um, and kicking people out. This doesn't mean that they have to be done the same way in the future. Many of our parks that were created in Alberta, I think Banff National Park, Canada's first national park, was done so with the idea that nature and people need to be separate, and that the conservation of nature could not occur with the people's use of the land. And I'm not talking about industrial exploitation. That is not compatible with parks. But the removal of indigenous people from the land in the name of creating a park is something that happened in a lot of our park system in Alberta in the late 19th and 20th centuries. So what we see as the future of parks does not have to be the complete removal of people and their use of nature and enjoyment of it. And the future of parks is, I believe, going to be indigenous-led and co-managed. We've been working a lot within our organization with First Nations on the creation of indigenous, protected, and conserved areas. Um, and an indigenous and protected and conserved area has many different na- definitions, but it is one where the lands and waters are um, where indigenous governments have the primary role in protecting and conserving the ecosystems through indigenous laws and governance. And the, the lands are managed by the indigenous communities on whose traditional territory the protected areas are on and in sustainable and culturally appropriate ways. So I'm really looking forward to a future where we have connected protected areas networks that are co-managed or managed by indigenous communities across the nation. One of the more exciting new and local protected area projects that's going forward is the consideration of a national urban park here in the city of Edmonton. And so the city of Edmonton is currently in discussion with Parks Canada, and partnered with the Confederacy of Treaty 6 First Nations and the Métis Nation of Alberta about the potential for establishing that national urban park. This is something that CEPAWS Northern Alberta has been actively encouraging, um, and we're really supportive of it within the city. But we really don't want to limit it to one small location, and we're trying to encourage connectivity the exploration of having multiple park sites, and restoring access and connections through neighboring counties and other sites so that we can think big and broad, and maybe in 70 years, no one is up here showing a video of a highway engineer advocating for highways through all of our protected areas. So with that jumbled chat, I did wanna just give a shout out. There is a public consultation on pre-feasibility for the National Urban Park held by the city of Edmonton and it closes on October 10th. So if anybody does want to participate in that, I encourage you to look it up. But anyway, thank you so much for having me up here. It's really inspiring to hear so many people connected to the land. And I really wanna encourage everyone to get out and enjoy the spaces around them, but really think Big about what it means to have a well connected protected areas network and how that really is going to help ourselves and our environment far into the future. So, thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you, Tara Russell. And with that, we will take a short break, I'll let you digest all these thoughts the about
1: listening to Let's Find Out. We're coming up on the last segments from Let's Find Out About Parks, a show we recorded live at the Aviary on September 29th, 2022. As our live show participants enjoy their drinks, I wanted to take this opportunity to share a little bit about our sponsors. Let's Find Out is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, and the network is sponsored by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. Endowments help you make a difference, not just in your lifetime, but forever. It can be easier than you think to start an endowment fund yourself. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. And I encourage you to check out the Alberta Podcast Network, home to over 30 unique podcasts from Edmonton, Calgary and Red Deer, covering sports, pop culture, life and work and more. Glass Bookshop has a podcast offering interviews with their favorite writers. They started two years ago with Vivek Shreya and Juliana Neufeld talking about their book, God Loves Hair. And the latest episode puts my good friend, Hannah McGregor on the mic to talk about her memoir, A Sentimental Education. It's fantastic, as is the bookstore. So check it out at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Okay, let's get back to the show.
0: So we're going to hear from one more speaker tonight, and then we're going to do another little thing together. And then we'll be opening up our story garden for your questions. So our next speaker, Sarah Delano, is a mother and a language instructor. She is a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta and has ancestral ties to River Lot 28, one lot over from the Kinnaird Rat Creek Ravine, um, which sits very close to where she currently lives in the community of Parkdale. She harvests plants and berries in the ravine with her daughter, who helped make the delicious crisp today. and uh, Sarah's recently completed a community-based research project that Rescue book that I think is really amazing and I saw her talk about this once and I was like please please come share more about it with us um, because it has so many interesting insights into diversity and green space and urban agriculture and I just think it offers a really fascinating window into what it can look like to have people in parks in the city so Sarah Delano
4: Okay, hello. Um, I do have some visuals to go along with my presentation, and I know it's maybe slightly awkward, so you can look at me, you can look at the screen, however you feel um, comfortable. So thanks for the introduction. Uh, My name is Sarah. I kind of wear a lot of hats. One of them is uh, I work at the university, and I often see the treaty acknowledgements at the university, um, and they really focus on this one particular line which says that Treaty 6 is a place for gathering, a place to gather. Um, And that's something that really uh, kind of drew my attention because I see especially the River Valley as a place to gather community and also to gather food and how the interplay of those those two things is really interesting um, to me. And I'm really happy to be here specifically uh, because this is kind of my community and thanks to the organizers for making this happen. And thanks so much to the aviary that does so many wonderful um, community Events and really supports our local communities as well. Um, And I'm also really happy to be here because we're we're in Ward Métis and the the ward gets its name from some of the river lots that used to be here and that actually shaped a lot of the urban form that we see today. Um, And so those uh, river lots included farms but also they had uh, areas close to the river for trapping and for berry picking and plant gathering And I'm gonna talk a little bit about how that foraging carries on today in Edmonton, um, and how that is also part of the potential for parks to be inclusive spaces and and community spaces. So this is, you can see some of the river lots here. Um, The Canard Ravine is the squiggly little line over there, or the Rat Creek Ravine. You can see there. Um, and so the Kirkness River lot is 26. The Fraser River lot is 28. And those were some of my um, ancestors. You can see my notes that say swing. There's a really cool swing down there, which is a bit of a secret, but not anymore, because uh, I didn't erase it properly. Um, but so this this area is really, really important to me for a lot of reasons. And I didn't grow up in Edmonton. And when I moved here, um, one of the first things that I did was, was get into the river valley. Um, and I think it's, it's also important to think about urban spaces as spaces for um, gathering food. I think something, something like 70% of Métis people currently live in urban centers, and so those spaces uh, where we're able to gather is, are, are really important spaces, and there are some bylaws currently when we think about municipal parks, municipal green space, Uh, that prohibits some of that harvesting. And some of it would be, for example, Marilyn in her beautiful talk uh, mentioned raspberry leaf. So any harvesting of leaves or branches or things of that nature is technically prohibited. And and so there's a bit of a tension around uh, who decides how we use green spaces and and what kinds of activities can happen there. Um, And so when I got into the river valley and really enjoyed being there, that was something that I thought would be interesting to other people as well. And one of my other jobs, I'm an English teacher and I work with a group of women at the Multicultural Family Resource Society, which is also very close by here. Um, And so we decided to all go together into the ravine and something that was really natural for me was picking berries with my daughter, picking berries with my mother, and we were a group of women Uh, Some grandmothers, some mothers, lots of kids, always with us. Um, And we went in there, and we thought it would be interesting to take a look at some of the recipes that we could make with the things that we harvested there, mostly because most of my students were very good cooks. And I I was a part of making the recipe book, but I'm a really terrible cook, and my daughter would be nodding furiously if she was here. Um, So it's kind of funny that that's what came about, but uh, we, we ended up making this book. Yeah, so here you can see some of the the journeys that we took into the ravine. Um, And that's where we started to gather the berries and think about um, how we connected to those spaces and and what we could do with the harvest as well. So this is the final project. Uh, This is the book that we created. There were 10 women and myself. um, And we, we came up with some amazing recipes based on what we did. But we also talked about a lot of interesting perspectives on parks And on urban gardens um, and kind of talked about you know how how different perspectives are sometimes missing from those spaces it's a fairly well documented issue the the exclusion of people of color from green spaces um, and that's something that can be based on proximity of neighborhoods to green space the access to the Rat Creek ravine is actually the only inner city access to the River Valley in in Edmonton Um, It can also be based on representation. There were a few years ago, Mech had kind of a famous apology for only using white people in their advertisement. Um, And then I think it's also based on what is and is not permitted in park spaces. And that's one of the things around foraging that that we were looking at. Um, And so we as a group, these 10 women from 10 different countries and myself, we kind of created this project in order to create our own belonging and agency within those those spaces. Um, And so the the title you can see there is Rat Roots and Reasons to Gather. The rat roots, we kind of considered this our journey through the research process. These are the two thesis questions. You don't need to read through all of them. Um, But essentially, we looked at how participating in these types of green spaces and then creating recipes based on the foods that we harvested there could support feelings of belonging for, for ourselves within those spaces. And then the second question that we looked at was how our participation can also facilitate kind of a larger reimagining of, of how we see and use green space and parks within the city. Okay, and then the next one, these are our reasons to gather. And so we came up with a couple of things from our research that we thought were really important. Um, and one of them was about social inclusion in parks. And so that we came, we, we talked about how that was not about just getting people into urban gardens and forests and parks, but having some freedom to define how we use those spaces. Um, And then the second reason to gather was building this kind of equitable future where we're questioning the dominance of, of a certain perspective, which is often kind of a colonial perspective of nature as pristine or something that we shouldn't touch too much, that we shouldn't interact with, and we felt like a relational connection created a deeper connection uh, for all of us. And so we wanted to kind of confront those histories of exclusion in food systems and green space. Um, And then kind of the the last thing that I wanted to say is just that I I think it's really important to highlight how different cultures, not only indigenous cultures, but different cultures uh, in general relate to river valley space and park space, how that's been done historically and also presently I think is really important and just kind of opening up how we understand, plan, and manage the space. So not necessarily we're selling you a certain certain idea, but more that idea that there are a lot of perspectives out there that can be helpful in terms of of managing those spaces uh, in a good way. So you can read a little bit more about that in the book, um, and you can also read some fabulous recipes. I have a couple of copies of the book with me. We have an online version that's free, which I can't remember if I put on the next slide. No, but we have some fabulous art by Sulima, who's here and I promised I wouldn't embarrass her, but she's over there and did all of our fabulous art. <laughs> and, and perhaps the next, there it is. So we do have a free online version. We want the book to be accessible for everyone. Uh, it's for sale at Audrey's Books. I have a few that are slightly discounted today. Um, and you will find all kinds of recipes using carragana blossoms, which are fabulous. Highbush cranberries, uh, we have like a Venezuelan Breakfast soup recipe, which has been known to cure a hangover. So all kinds of great things you can find in there. We hope that you're able to access it and read it and learn a little bit about what we did in in the park space here. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah Delaney. Um, thank you for taking on that, taking us on that tasty journey into our backyard and for showing us that we all belong in our backyard and um, helping inspire us to start journeying into the river valley. Um, So we want to kind of bring things together at the end of the night here. Uh, We have one last little activity that's going to help you reflect on these three wonderful speakers. and
0: because I tweaked it since we came up with this concept. Come on. (laughs) So on your table, I came around and dropped a little more like brain food. Um, So you can just use that brain food to start talking. You don't have to like make that the be all and end all of your conversation. What I want you to do with your tables is collectively come up with five questions about park's history in edmonton that could start with that little thing on your table or they could just start with everything else we've been talking about tonight the goal of course is to build questions for our story garden so good questions for let's find out are questions that are answerable uh not googleable and they're about history so the past which is like i feel like pretty easy to do and
1: about edmonton uh, but also the Edmonton area. So uh, we're thinking as far as Elk Island or, or around this region,
0: yeah.
1: So think about the things you've heard and uh, talk about questions that you have come together, make those questions better, write them down, and uh, we'll reconvene. Thank
5: you
6: looked at the history of the city it's gone through you know
5: like riverside
4: mining and log floats going up and down and so like our parks are, are quite a bit younger than we actually realize so I, there's, I think there's lessons about resilience and regrowth in there that would be interesting to hear about yeah.
3: The First Nations were settled and they would spend the winter there. And I never really saw that because I was too young, but we picked that up and we got old and saw. And we found some of the stuff to left behind, and it was really, really neat. He got left behind along the fence line on the field. What did you write
1: down?
6: I wrote down. I saw an onion or chive plant along the river in Government House Park. Why? How?
1: That's a good question. Can't Google that. Can't Google that. No. <laughs> but I, I don't, yeah. No, you read it, you read it. <laughs>
5: A yeah. new manual for the identification against, uh, of our trees in Edmonton. I love that. Uh, yeah. Did you, know, you call Justin Bieber? I guess that. What did you
2: call Justin Bieber?
0: All right, all right.
2: I think he's been a guest on your podcast. Yeah. Okay, hey
0: <laughs> Was connected to the Papoose Cree Reserve, and I want to know the transition between the Papoose Cree, the city. And the McTaggart family, and how that land ended up being under the purview of the U of A. So, I think it's really. That sounds like a good question.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I've been actually in the the mansion, the
3: house, McDonald's.
2: Yeah, because my family friend worked for them,
1: the family, so.
0: don't have to stop writing but we just want to say some thank yous. We've come to the end of our time here today which means um, it's time for us to collect any last questions you might have at the top of your brains about the history of parks and natural spaces in and around Edmonton. Put them in our little story garden at the back with your name and contact information and we'll be picking from those to build our season ahead.
1: And we're not kicking you out so you can continue to write them down for for a little while, don't worry. Um, But yes, if we pick your question, we'll be inviting you on a field trip to a park, a library, an archive, wherever we need to go
0: to find out the answers together. Parks are complicated places. They're the center of all kinds of storms of values, of interest groups, of trade-offs. But they've been a key part of our history over the last 150 or so years, and they're gonna be a key part of how we protect the biosphere going forward. So let's get to know them better. Yeah, so uh, we just like to wrap
1: up with some thank yous. Um, thank you to all of you for coming out. Thank you to our wonderful guest speakers Marilyn Dumont, Tara Russell, and Sarah Delano. Thank you to the
0: Aviary for hosting us all, especially Philip Muse. Thank you, you did a million things to make this happen. Thanks to Rocky Faro, Paul Jung, Catherine Lennon. Karen Unland, Luke Wanick, Alex Pawlucki, and everybody else who helped us brainstorm right <laughs> ideas for the season. Uh, thanks to Denise Chang-Yen for the food support. <laughs> thanks, Mom. And to Mayara for helping us cook that delicious food tonight. Yeah. And
1: thank you to our patient family for supporting us, including
0: Finn. And Elliot.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and my grandma, Frances.
1: So Let's Find Out is produced by Chris Chang and Phillips and me, Trevor Chow-Fraser. You can drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. I can only buy one. Dis. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. We're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where you can probably find links
0: to download podcasts. Original music for this podcast is by the storm-hardened but currently still-standing PEI-based human being Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.
4: thought it would be. I thought that it was going to be way more boring, but instead it was really fun. (laughs) I I thought that it was just going to be talking and doing adult stuff. But instead, there was coloring. There was food. um, Cookies, fruits, even things for kids to drink.
1: Not at all boring adult stuff.